Welcome to the Liberty Cafe, where oppression is on the menu. There is widespread debate in our culture today over religion, over whether there is or not a God. If there is a God, who is this God, and how should we worship him? And as my listeners know, unfortunately, the godless worldview side of this debate is becoming more and more embedded into our culture, but not just into our culture, also into our government and its laws, which is really turning this, what is a debate, into a police state. And so what we see is more and more today that for those who witness in a particular way, profess a belief in a particular God and see the belief in that God that should be expressed in certain ways, we see that the civil government is actually removing protections for those people, protections they should be offering. And not only that, but actually criminalizing that behavior sometimes. And so that's what we're going to talk today about on episode 87 of the Liberty Cafe. Hi, my name's Bill Peacock. I'm glad you're here with me today. I'm also very glad and blessed to have Texas Scorecard as our sponsor. So let's go ahead and get into this just a little bit and and see if we can make sense of uh, this debate about God and, and the downfall, if you will, of our culture into the place where we can't even discuss God and who he is, at least not the Christian God, the, the real God, the true God, the one holy God, the creator of heaven and earth. All right, so I, I want to start the conversation today with um, talking about an article I read from Dennis Prager. I'm sure you know who he is. Great man, conservative. He's not a Christian, but he's Jewish, so he believes in a God, not necessarily, well, not not the, the real true God, because the true God is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And to deny the divinity of Christ is to deny God who he is. But I'm glad that Dennis Prager is a conservative and that he acknowledges a God and we can pray for him that he would bring, God would bring him to belief in the one true uh, Trinitarian God. But he wrote a great article and uh, let me let me just start out by by reading this because I, I want us to start off this conversation by talking about experts. And here's uh, the beginning of Prager's article. A caller to my radio show this week, a physician took strong issue with me regarding COVID-19 therapeutics. He accused me of not believing in science. His last words before we had to go to a commercial break were, "I'm a scientist." Given that I'm not a scientist, he assumed that comment would persuade me, or at least persuade many li- listeners that I was not qualified to disagree with him. If that was his assumption, he was wrong. I don't care, I responded. It's irrelevant. Scientists have given science a bad name. I would not have said that as recently as three years ago. That's a really good place to get this conversation going. Scientists, and you can include all different kinds of things, but but experts, really, I I would suggest, have been giving um, expertise in science a bad name for for much longer than than uh, two or three years. So I'm glad Prager has come around to that, and I, I think a lot of you others have come along around on that a long time, for a long time, just as I have. And um, it, it, it's just that there's this concept in our culture today that we have to listen to the experts and to the scientists. 
And if they tell us something, well, we better believe it. And if we don't, if we profess to not believe and to come up with other ideas, we're crazy, we're fringe people, things like that. But if anything was made apparent during COVID-19, it's this idea that expertise and, and science are things we just have to listen to uh, with without any thought to. We just have to listen and obey. But that's obviously not the case. A Prager lists a couple of things uh, along those lines. He talks about at the mid-height of the COVID-19 pandemic, he's talking about how the, the, the medical community was demanding physical distancing and mask wearing and the lockdown of business and schools. Yeah, at that exact same time, there were, and here's how he puts it, more than a thousand healthcare professionals announced that the protest against racism that's taking place, events with no social distancing, often no mask, plenty of yelling, and people coughing uncontrollably were medically necessary. We, I'm sure we all remember that, how crazy that was. Then there was a case with therapeutics in COVID-19. It became criminal, or at least uh, disqualifying you from your profession, if you, as a physician, tried to uh, subscribe, prescribe hydroxychlorine or ivermectin to your patients. And even if it wasn't quite to that extent, it was a hard time for, for both doctors and and patients to get one of those treatments during this thing. As a result, um, here he is, uh, Harvey, Harvey Risch, with the, who was a professor of epidemiology at Yale School. He, he wrote this, and it's, it's worth reading. This is, again, in the, um, in the article by uh, Dennis Prager. He wrote, I myself know of two doctors who have saved the lives of, of hundreds of patients with these medications, but are now fighting state medical boards to save their licenses and reputations. The cases against them are completely without scientific uh, merit. Then he also wrote that tens of thousands of patients with COVID-19 are dying unnecessarily. I, I think that's absolutely true if you, if you look around. Tens of thousands of Americans died because they couldn't get access to uh, therapeutic drugs, because some group of experts somewhere said it was a hoax. That's a big problem. And then the, the final example he, he talks about here, at least the one I'm going to talk about, is when he uh, points to um, the National Institute of Health Director, Francis Collins, who, by the way, is a, is a hero among many uh, evangelicals in the world today. But he, he, he's one of these men who's responsible indirectly uh, for, I think, a lot of deaths and damage done during the uh, COVID uh, thing because he, again, bought into this lockstep marching along the line of listening to just the experts. And, uh, and he, he came out at one point in time. Uh, urging colleagues to boycott any high-level scientific consensus, I'm sorry, scientific conference that doesn't have women and underrepresented min minorities in marquee speaking slots. Now, we should all be happy when people of all different creeds and colors and, and sexes, you know, there's only two of those, by the way, and we'll get to that in just a minute. But um, he, we should be pleased when folks like that, you know, whatever they are, get to speak and there's diversity. 
But unfortunately, th this diversity that Francis Collins and others are pushing has nothing to do with true knowledge and wisdom. So we just put, and qualifications even, we just put people in places because they're different whatever. And then, of course, even more so than that, it's that diversity of these different, you know, races and, and sexes seem to be important, but there's no diversity of opinion, room for that in these kind of situations. So that's um, Dennis Prager. And, and like I said, you know, he finishes up his article by thanking God. And again, he's not thanking the right God, but we, and we pray that he can, but I'm glad he's bringing God because we Christians can, will see him as true, true holy God into the picture because a lot of people aren't. A lot of people in these uh, debates aren't even doing that. And that brings us over to the, the second article I'd like to talk about. It's this article by a guy named Stephen Novella. Now, Stephen Novella is a doctor. He is an academic clinical neurologist, which tells you probably something about him. You know, people who, unfortunately, who are in academia today, not, not all of them, but a lot of them are caught up in the... The whole secular expertise picture we have today, and a lot of that has to do with money. If you if you don't sign on to the trendy, secular, godless trends of today, you don't get money from the federal government most of the time. And therefore, so many people who maybe started out well and well-intentioned, just get more and more sucked into this thing. That's certainly what happened with global warming, climate change, and all the blaming humans on climate change. That That's happened there. It happens in medicine. So anyway, uh, Dr. Novella is the uh, executive editor of Science-Based Medicine. I, I read Science-Based Medicine uh, quite often, not because it teaches me anything about truth, because it, it rarely does, ex except in the fact it provides a good example of how the truth is being twisted time and time and time again. And that it's being done so by scientists, in this case, a doctor, an expert. This guy would, I'm sure, would call himself both a doctor and a scientist, uh, given that he's a clinical neuro neurologist. And in the things he's written here, he's writing about the science of biological sex. And it, it, it's just so perverted, I guess, is, a, is one way you could describe it, perverting perversion of the truth, that it's, it's worth looking at in a, in a little bit of detail. We're not going to go through this very deeply. But uh, he, you know, he, he's writing this article because he, he, he starts it off with saying, what does the science actually say about biological sex? Because the, the whole point of science-based medicine is that if people would just pay attention to the science, we wouldn't have these debates about whether or not you know homosexuality is is right or wrong or transgenderism. There's something abnormal about transgenderism. You would just look at the science. You say, oh, these are perfectly natural, normal, and happy and healthy things, and, and even you know taking a ten or eleven or twelve year old boy or girl and sexually mutilating them is just part of 
science-based healthcare, right? So that, that's where groups like this come from. Uh, so he, and so that's what he's trying to do with this article is just saying all those things are perfectly normal. We just need to look at the science. And the and the way he does that is is he takes a look at all the traits relevant to to sex along what he calls a bimodal uh, distribution. This is different than uh, uh, you know, having, uh, instead, of, he calls it bimodal instead of binary. Instead of male and female, and those are the two choices, he calls it bimodal, where, where you have male and female, but then a lot of stuff in between. And he lays out here um, what he says are the current generally accepted schemes for organizing the traits related to sex. And, and here's how he, he organizes those. First, there's genetic sex. That's you know, XY chromosomes. And then there's morphological sex. Now, some people, most people would call this biological sex. Do we have sexual parts and characteristics that are part of our biology? But he, he says that's a bad way of looking at that. And then, uh, then he gets into sexual orientation, gender identity, and gender expression. So he says those are all the scientific things we need to look at in order to d determine whether the binary or the um, bimodal way of looking at sex is the scientific way. And so, obviously, he, he comes to this position... Um, by distorting reality, and, and he really does this in, in two ways. And I, I won't go into the whole article, but the first thing he does is he makes the exception the rule. Uh, he talks about that there are, um, you know, yes, he says most people fall into one of the two main chromosomal patterns, right? Females being XX and males XY. But then he says we also see other patterns, such as XXY, XYY, XXX, and further, some people can be mosaics with some cells having XX and others XY. So I, I don't doubt that's true. And, and we know from a Christian standpoint that these things are possible simply because um, we live in a fallen world. God created us perfectly and completely, but th there was work to be done to complete our maturity but we were still whole and complete as human beings and perfect. But then, of course, we, we fell through the sin of Adam and, and the world rebelled also and went into decay. And now we have things like uh, people with the wrong chromosome makeup, right? But nonetheless, it, but he puts it, there are essentially women walking around have no idea that they have XY chromosomes. So essentially, he, he is taking what are very small exceptions to the rule and trying to normalize those and broaden those out and saying, look, because we have a few of these things like this over here, then this, this idea of using genetics to define male and female just can't work for anybody. Right. So that's the first way he goes about this. And, of course, that is incorrect. The second thing he does is that he, uh, he tries to make sexual orientation a biological fact. Right? And, and, and you notice you know, his list of things went from, um, 
where I'm sorry, I got my paper here. I'm having to dig through it a little bit. You can probably hear that here. Uh, so he, he went from talking about the, the, the two uh, truly, I guess, biological markers and, uh, on um, sex, where he talks about genetic sex and biological sex, or at least he called it morphological sex. But then he goes on to these other lists, sexual orientation, gender identity, and gender expression. And there's no science involved in, in those things to the extent that you can look at those and say, gender identity, oh, you can define that biologically and scientifically, and therefore it's real. Well, it's not real. It's, it's natural and normal, and it's biological. But what he, so what he does is he tries to uh, conflate all those other things, and, but he starts with sexual orientation to make it a biological fact. And, and here's, here's a quote he uses from a neurobiologist, Dick F. Swab, who writes, Current evidence indicates that sexual differentiation of the human brain occurs during fetal and neonatal development, and our programs are gender identity. Our feeling of being male or female and our sexual orientation is a hetero, homo, and bisexual. So Dr. Schwab here, Schwab, and others have gone out and looked at um, human brains as far back as in the uh, fetal development, neonatal development, right? So I don't know if they're pulling out brains, tissues from aborted babies or what, but they're looking at this and saying, oh, yeah, you can tell that uh, gender identity is based in the biological makeup of a fetal brain. Yeah, I just don't think you can go there with that. And yeah, I don't have a lot of science in front of me on that, but I, but I do think if we dug into the science that we could see some problems with what they're suggesting is true there. So, again, here we have the situation with the science-based medicine folks, where there is no God in this debate. Dennis Prager brings in God, but these folks don't at all. And, frankly, I think we can, as Christians, understand that this is where the problem really begins, is that when people refuse to acknowledge God, they refuse to worship God, they refuse to learn from God and read his word and understand what his word is telling us, then it messes up everything. As God's word has told us, um, the beginning of wisdom, fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. If we don't fear God, if we don't worship him and praise him, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, we're going to mess up. Doesn't mean we can't know things about this world, have some knowledge and understanding about this world. You know, for instance, Dennis Prager, he's got things, a lot of things figured out pretty well. Um, and that's called common grace, that even unbelievers can learn about things, about God and the way he designed world, the world and the way to work. But we don't truly know who God is and truly understand how and why he made this world and how it works unless we worship him as believers in his son, Jesus Christ. And, and so here's the third person I want to bring up uh, briefly. It's, it's a guy named David Berlinski. Again, David Berlinski is an agnostic Jew. I, unlike Dennis Prager, who I think is a practicing Jew, acknowledges the existence of God, um, David Berlinski doesn't even do that, right? 
he he says, look, he says he doesn't pray, uh, has no idea whether God exists or not, but he doesn't deny him, at least. And um, yet he comes out in, in his book, uh, The Devil's Delusion, makes a strong defense of religious thoughts, not of Christianity, but the fact that science without religion is a problem. And so here's how he explains that. Um, he says, because scientific theories are true, religious beliefs must be false, is a problem. And he goes on to say that I say that, that well, he says that, and that's an inconvenient fact because, and here he goes, I am a secular Jew. My religious education did not take. I can barely remember a word of Hebrew. I cannot pray. I have spent more years than I care to remember in studying mathematics and writing about the sciences. Yet the book that follows is in some sense a defense of religious thought and sentiment. Biblical verses are the least of it. So I find this pretty fascinating. And if you read this book, he, he's a brilliant man. He, he's, he's a scientist. He's a philosopher. He, he does a lot of things. Highly recommend his book, Devil's Delusion. But here, here, here's the problem, or the challenge anyway. One of the best defenders of bringing religious thought into the debate about science is an agnostic Jew. And we need to do a better job of that, of Christians in this. Now, I will say that in the scientific world, actually, there's a lot of good Christian scientists and thinkers bringing this in. You know, Creation Ministries uh, does a great job. Uh, the um, uh, doc, Dr. Lyle, I can't remember his, his first name, um, but he does really good work on this. There's Ken Ham and all the work that he does up in, where's that, Kentucky with the Ark and, and all those kind of things, bringing Christian thought into the sciences. So that's pretty strong and robust these days. Where it's less so, however, is in the public policy sphere. And that's where I want to finish up today, is it's just mentioning, talking about how we can increase our Christian witness and increase the clarity, improve the clarity of the debate over public policy by bringing God into the word, into the debate, right? And I've talked a lot about this before, and I'm going to continue to talk about it again. Um, because I, I've been working on this for a long time. I, you know, most of you know I worked for the Texas Public Policy Foundation for 15 years, left in 2020. And I'd say for the, probably the last three years that I was there, I was encouraging the leadership of which I was part of, of the Texas Public Policy Foundation, to bring the specific mention of God's word into our public policy debates, because I'm firmly convinced that we can't change minds until we change hearts. You know, we can talk about free markets and liberty all day long, but if people hate God and are more, are more into um, raging against God, that's what Psalm 2 says, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? People who are raging against God and plotting in vain against him are not really open to reason debate. And so the first thing we need to do before we change minds is to change hearts. And the only way we can do that is bring the whole counsel of God to the picture. And 
And unfortunately, it's not just, you know, it's not conversion. It's not just the gospel that we need. But there's all kinds of Christians out there who don't read the whole counsel of God either and have no idea how applicable the Word of God is, the Bible is, to the entire public policy debate we face today. And so I, I tried for about three years to do that before I left. And, and you know, they were Christians there for the most part. They understood what I was talking about. But they just couldn't move past the, make that paradigm shift. Uh, the, the Overton window, if you will, the Overton window is, is the thing out there. And, by, and I can't remember his first name, but he was at the Mackinac Center up in, in uh, Michigan. And he coined this phrase about how the public policy debate shifts over time and what was unacceptable before becomes acceptable. Well, so the Overton window has been shifting to the left where we talk about a lot of things in public today that just couldn't have occurred you know, 15, 20 years ago, farther back than that, too. But unfortunately, you know, conservative free market and even Christian groups are having a hard time pushing to shift the Overton window back the other way to bringing the debate about bringing Scripture into the debate and making that acceptable. And so, you know, I understand why TPPF didn't do that, but I, I think it was... I think it's it's short-sighted and doesn't get us where we need to go. And a lot of other people, you know, so for instance, I was listening to Luke Macias's show, which I try to do every week. He's excellent. And he was talking about the the House Freedom Caucus. Great group group of guys over there. And uh, he was talking about how the, 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 the mainstream Republicans, establishment Republicans, sometimes weaponize the House Freedom Caucus uh, against the grassroots conservatives who support the Freedom Caucus and, and who's bringing the message of the grassroots as part of the job of the Freedom Caucus under their bylaws, but somehow that, get, that gets twisted sometimes. So I was thinking about that, how we really need to weaponize God's word for the battle that we face against those who are raging against God, right? And, and so... For instance, you know, Luke talked about the, the transgender debate and Matt Krause and how uh, the, the, the House Freedom Caucus's name was kind of weaponized against the, the grassroots in that situation. And, you know, on, a, on the bill that Matt Krause carried uh, that would have outlawed transgender um, surgeries and, and I think also um, not just surgeries, but just, you know, hormones and things like that. For, for kids. And uh, but I, and I, I didn't follow the debate, but I wonder how many people, if anybody, Matt or anybody else, got up on the House floor, well, it didn't actually get to the House floor, but got up in the committees and in their conversations and read, for instance, just Genesis 127, right? Uh, so God created man in, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That would be a nice place to start this whole discussion about homosexuality and, and transgenderism, right? I mean, is it really okay to make a boy a girl or a girl or boy? Is that vile? I mean, is it just, you know, acknowledging what's really real inside this kid? Or is it going against God's holy word and his design for the world? I, I think if we don't have those kind of debates on transgender issues, we lose eventually. And the Overton window gets to keep shifting and shifting. But we can also have that debate over a lot of different other things. Private property rights, 
you know, the, the fact of the matter is, in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. And that means that he owns everything. And if he owns everything and has delegated his ownership to people down here, well, then he has a right to tell us how we're supposed to use his property and how that property should be divided up. So when we're talking about eminent domain and, and regulatory takings and those kind of things, maybe we ought to spend a little bit more time in Scripture. Same thing goes with theft, right? Thou shall not steal. Well, have you ever thought about corporate cronyism, taking money from small taxpayers and giving it to big multi-billion dollar corporations? Do you think that might have something to do with theft? It wasn't until the early 1980s when Texans passed a constitutional amendment allowing government gifts to private corporations, otherwise known as economic development or corporate cronyism, by only 51% that you could do all this stuff with corporate welfare, economic development programs. But, but maybe that's got something to do with theft as well. And then finally, you know, public education and parental rights. What does the Bible have to teach us about that? Does it tell us that public education should even exist? Should, should the parents, should the taxpayers be forced to pay for the education of other people's children? And if so, what, how does that work? Right? Should we have school choice? Should schools, public schools, provide a safe haven for you know, abortions? allow kids to leave school to go get abortions or to engage in transgender identity shifts without telling their parents. I think the Bible could inform us a lot on those kinds of things. Well, th that's the basic point I want to get across today, and I know it took a lot of time doing it, a little longer than I usually talk, but I think it's worth talking through this issue and, and getting an idea of how God can inform our debates, God's word, God, worship of God, prayer to God, singing his praise, can inform our debate in the public sphere over many things, including the public policies that we have today. And if we don't do that as a culture and as a people, we're not going to win this culture war. We're going to lose it. Christians are going to lose this culture war. So we really need to step up our game in bringing God's Word, the whole counsel of God's Word, to the public debate that is going around us today. Well, thank you very much for listening to episode 87 of the Liberty Cafe today. I'm always blessed to have you here with me and blessed, as always, to have Texas Scorecard as our sponsor. Thank you for listening to the Liberty Cafe with Bill Peacock. This show is produced by Texas Scorecard. You can learn more about this show and find other shows at texasscorecard.com. Be sure you subscribe and rate the show on whatever platform you listen on. See you next time.